Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada is bracing itself for further retaliation from China as they followed suit and expelled a Canadian diplomat. Just what kind of implications can we expect? Well, we'll get into that. The Liberal government is now backstepping a liberal policy that would hurt press freedoms. Marcus Kolga, the director of DisinfoWatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute will join us to talk about that. And could the new health care reform bill here in Ontario lead to patients paying out of pocket? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We should have expected this. I knew, I think everybody knew this was going to happen. Uh, Beijing has responded to Ottawa's decision to the expulsion of a Chinese diplomat. Uh, now a Canadian diplomat has been removed from China as tensions between the two governments rise. Global's Kyle Benning has the latest for us. The Prime Minister says Canada will not be intimidated by China following its decision to expel a Canadian diplomat. The move is seen as retaliation for Ottawa's expulsion of Chinese diplomat Zhao Wei. Justin Trudeau says the government has considered further retaliation from China, including trade disputes. We understand uh, there is retaliation, uh, but we will not be intimidated and we will continue to do everything necessary to keep our Canadians protected from foreign interference. Beijing called its expulsion of Canada's diplomat as just and necessary. Zhao Wei has been at the center of the latest foreign meddling claims after the Globe and Mail reported on a Canadian security document claiming he was looking to intimidate a conservative MP and his family in Hong Kong. Kyle Benning, Global News. So how far is this going to go uh, and, and just what's going to be included in this? Uh, it could get very ugly, as we've seen in the past. Joining us to talk about this is Michael Mangiris. Michael is a professor and chair of global management studies at Toronto's Metropolitan University. Uh, Michael, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. And good morning to you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you about that. This is the, a tit for tat. We boot one of them out. They boot one of ours out. Uh, but the history shows, though, Michael, that this, this is usually not where it ends. There are a, a myriad of, of, of economic sanctions that they can uh, impose if they so wish. And, and I think they're waiting for that other shoe to drop. Uh, what, what do you see happening, especially in the near future here? I, I, I'm not so sure that there's going to be any uh, sort of trade barrier created by China or retaliated by ourselves at this point in time. I think both governments right now are kind of taking a wait and, and see approach. Uh, we may see more sort of, uh, uh, you know, diplomats being expelled, uh, you know, that kind of action happening if this were to escalate any further. And the reason I, I feel this way is simply because, um, you know, businesses and, and the economies of both countries have just kind of stabilized, you know, uh, in terms of supply routes, you know, given where we were with the pandemic over the last couple of years. And we have to remember that, you know, prices are starting to rise in China and any kind of action the government may take uh, that may fuel that further would cause some disruption and unrest in China itself. So they're very, very um, careful in terms of whatever approach they're going to take next. So I, I'm a little bit of the, of the mind that we will not see any immediate sort of economic barriers being created at this point in time. And I know that that can get really ugly if it does start. And you, I think your point's well taken. It was just recently that the, the, the canola uh, uh, ban and the embargo that the Chinese have put on has, has come off. Uh, but from what I'm seeing here, and I think you've just verified it for us, uh, the Chinese people, they could they actually be spreading out, cutting out their nose to spite their face if they wanted to get into a, an economic and especially some of the agricultural products here because China needs that stuff right now, don't they? Well, that's right. If if we, you know, our trade with China is, 
is small compared to other partners China has. We're not even in their top 10 in terms of trade partners. But what we trade with them, what we export to them is very, very critical to them. Agricultural products, like you pointed out, canola was very, very important. Yes, they, they kind of uh, banned it from us for three years, but realized that the canola that we're buying from elsewhere was far more expensive. And the supply was starting to get tight in part because of the, you know, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and how that's disrupted the global agricultural market itself. But we also export quite a bit of um, energy products, oil, um, specifically coal. China is a big user of coal uh, at the moment. We also export uh, wood pulp. So this makes obviously paper products, packaging in particular, which is critical to Chinese exports, you know, of their own. So these are these are the things that we export to to China, and those items are very critical to their own economy. So, you know, they're they're very smart in terms of their wait and see. They do want to make a political statement. They don't, they themselves want to be seen as the bigger aggressor in this dispute. But they're also very smart in terms of the approach and they don't want to hurt their own economy. And we are important in terms of what it is we send to China. I, I don't want to try to get into the heads of the Chinese government here because I, I don't think that's practical and, and <laughs> probably a, a crazy task to even begin with. But is, was there a sense, do you think, Michael, that you know, when, when we made the arrest, of course, in, about Huawei, at the behest of the Americans, and then the two Michaels were incarcerated unjustly, do you think there were some people at least there that thought maybe we overreached there, that, that we maybe went a little bit too far based on what they had done? It's possible. And and certainly, Bill, you know, Chinese don't want to lose face in the world. And if there's an action by their government that at least could appear that that's happening, that could be disruptive. In other words, the, the individuals within the government that caused that to happen could take a fall. And that, you know, that's Chinese history. We've seen that in the past. So there is certainly when they arrested the two Michaels, um, you know, that was done for diplomatic uh, purposes or political purposes. But then given that it started to have a negative connotation on the Chinese image around the world, they quickly wanted to find a solution. So when Biden came in, you know, they worked with President Biden to try to find a solution for that and indeed did. They don't want to see the same kind of thing happening here. They don't want this to escalate to a point where, you know, their image around the world further uh, takes a negative hit. They want to, as you know, their actions in in uh, sort of other issues globally, like they want to be a peacemaker in Ukraine. They very much want to be, you know, the number one power, the number one influencer globally, not just economically but politically as well. And they're starting to show that ability on a diplomatic side. But they don't want to lose, you know, their, their current government wants to be a bit hawkish and they don't want to lose that sort of approach as well. So they're trying to balance both. It's it's not easy for them, given their culture and their uh, willingness to, you know, as I say, be more of a, a professional diplo uh, a diplomatic peacemaker around the world and having influence. But with Canada, we're a bit of a nuisance to them. And they'll do this tit for tat with us or anybody else. But as I said earlier, we're not a major trading partner with them and they don't want to jeopardize what it is we trade to them because it's so essential to their economy and their own exports. So I don't see this escalating, as I said previously, to anything major from the perspective of business. There are those, though, Michael, that, and I know you study this extensively. This is right into your wheelhouse about what's going on with China and other nations in the world. Uh, 
there's a, a perception among some of the guests I've talked to over the last little while uh, that maybe Canada is China's punching bag. In other words, when something happens that they're really ticked off about, they're not going to they're not going to reach out and, and and try to do something to the Americans or to the Brits, uh, but they'll do it to Canada and as almost like sending a message, like you know we can still do this. Uh, and it's, I guess they're not expecting us to push back, but now we're starting to do that. What what does that do to change that dynamic? Well, it, it's just like the school, you know, our schoolyard uh, recess fights when the when the bully thinks that they can't. Um, you know, push around a stronger opponent, then they go for the weaker one. And that's exactly what's happening here. You know, so you and your, and your previous guests are absolutely right. You know, what we've looked at and what we've studied, what we're seeing is they're surprised, perhaps, that Canada's pushed back. They're surprised with the stronger stance our government has taken. I think our government takes that strong stance because it reflects what most Canadians want. And that's, a, you know, it's a good thing. It doesn't matter if it's a liberal government or a conservative government. That's what Canadians in general want to see. And so when, when China sees that, I think that they are then surprised and once again will weigh how much further it's in their best interest to carry this or to end it and move on to other issues. And that's why I think at this point in time, China's probably believes that you know they've done the right thing we've gotten rid of a in essence an economic attache um the individual that we believe attempted you know to influence um one of our mps a conservative mp here in, in canada what china did is they've uh, expelled a consul general so think of it as a person in a higher position so they have in their mind believed that you know they've one-upped us Canada has, I think, correctly uh, looked, the Canadian government has correctly looked at what are the sort of major possible outcomes of all of this. And I think that the Canadian government has weighed that, you know, other than perhaps more diplomatic action, if any at all, that that's really as far as this is going to go. So, you know, to get to your question straight out, yes, you're right. China often looks at, well, we're going to push around Canada because, you know, they are not as strong as our in terms of a trade or economic relationship as the United States or Great Britain or Germany or Japan. And as a result, we can, you know, get sort of the best bang for our buck when we're trying to get the message out there that we, China, uh, are going to be major players in the global world or global economy today. Is, is it safe to say at this stage that uh, if there is going to be a tit for tat, and I, I agree, I don't think there's going to be any wholesale, at least we hope there isn't going to be any wholesale back and forth. But at this stage, though, Michael, I seem to be keeping at the diplomatic end as opposed to going after private citizens and, and business people. And, and, you know, as we've talked about in the past, there are a lot of Canadian people over there on business, enterprises, etc., uh, that could be targets in situations like this, the two Michaels being an example of that. Uh, but are, are they going to say, okay, we're, we're just going to keep it in this arena right now. We're not going to go there because that would be perceived as, as as obviously elevating the crisis too. That's correct. And I, and, and I believe that they're going to keep it in the diplomatic arena. That's kind of my belief given everything I've seen. Um, I think that Canadians over there and Canadian businesses over there have to remain cautious. And certainly our Canadian government has informed them of that. Um, but again, given that, you know, the economy of, of China itself has not returned to the you know the the gdp growth rates they were seeing previously previous to the pandemic they don't want to do anything to jeopardize their own growth you know between this year and 2024 and 2025 supply chain management systems have just stabilized as i mentioned earlier that's very important to china that's how china is able to sort of maintain their number two 
ranking in economic size in the world. And indeed, their goal is to overtake the United States eventually. Whether they do that or not is, is you know, for another time, a topic for another time. So I really believe they want to keep it in that diplomatic realm at the moment. That's not to say that there can't be somebody within the Chinese government who is more hawkish and believes that there should be an imposition, you know, in terms of a particular sector of our economy. Canola in the past, maybe it's going to be packaged port, uh, pork or other agricultural goods this time. I highly doubt that that's going to happen because they need, you know, what we send to them is more raw material based. What they send to us is more finished goods based. In order for them to produce those finished goods, they need our raw materials. So I really believe from an economic point of, point of view that they've weighed all this out. And as a result, they're going to try to keep it in the diplomatic realm. Michael, there was a story earlier this week, just to remind our listeners, uh, about Arcus. Of course, that was the uh, the deal that was struck uh, some months ago, I guess it was late last year, uh, between a number of nations. Canada was excluded, of course, the United States, the UK, Australia, and some others were involved in that. But the story earlier this week was that Canada wants to be involved in phase two. Uh, that seemed to be their phrase of, of Arcus. Uh, they don't want the nuclear submarine thing, because you know, that, that was the Prime Minister's excuse for not getting into it in the first place. Is, is this a rather subtle way of, of trying to lean on our allies one more time and show the Chinese that yeah, we're, we're part of this team here, we're not isolated by ourselves? I think so, and I, and I think it's a message, right? All of, all of these moves often are a message. And I think that is a message from the Canadian government to say, look, you know, if you start bullying us around, think of the schoolyard uh, analogy once again, if you start bullying us around, well, we'll just go and walk over and be part of the group of stronger uh, you know, individuals in, in, the, in the schoolyard because we do have ties with them. And those individuals, by the way, are extremely important to you, China. The United States and Australia are two major trading partners, the United States being number one, but Australia is, is in the top six as well. So if we are trying to get the message across, you know, hey, we have ties and here are the strong ties. And by the way, we're going to have stronger ties if we can get into this phase two within this group. It's a defense pack. Um, then perhaps China, you'll 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 have second thoughts about escalating this particular, you know, diplomatic dispute and starting any others in the future. So yes, I think the the two are very much tied together. It, it's not, I guess, as strong as the NATO, you know, attack on one is attack on us all. But it, it would protect our flank in case things started to get heated, wouldn't it? That's right, and and we very much have to be. You know, we often think of NATO, which is the Atlantic side of the country. I, I understand that it, you know, we have partners around the world, but. In our minds as Canadians, we tend to focus on the Atlantic side, but we can't forget the Pacific side. And, you know, the group you're talking about very much helps us with that. Um, you know, I should point out that, you know, those allies were surprised, I think, that Canada initially didn't want to join um, mm -hmm. and really did try to influence us in terms of, well, why don't you join and why don't you? you know, take on nuclear submarines as part of your defense pack. You know, they are looking to us to make that investment. Um, and I think that speaks, you know, to the fact that we're not perhaps holding up our end of the bargain in terms of investments in, in, uh, in our NATO obligations. So again, I realize that's a different topic, but in my mind, it all ties together. If we want to be, you know, strong with the group and show that to China, we have to be also willing, you know, to pay for it and to make investments in it more so than we have in the recent past.
Well, I can see that, and I, and I don't disagree. You're absolutely right. I mean, everything is tied together here. There's nothing you can look at here in isolation. I'm sure when they opted out of the first phase of Arcus that uh, there's somebody in the U.S. administration might have reminded them, didn't we just have a talk about you beefing up your commitment to the, to the Arctic? Those nuclear submarines that go a long way towards doing that. So I'm sure that's part of the conversation, but we'll have to pick it up another time. We're just about out of time this time. Always fascinating, Michael. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. And Bill, once again, thank you for having me. Look forward to next time. You betcha. Thanks again. Professor Michael Mangiris from uh, Toronto's Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's been an ongoing debate for, for the longest time, it seems, uh, about trying to clean up social media, clean up the internet, clean up some of the posts that are on there, some of the misinformation uh, that is spread uh, that some people take as fact, others, well, they retweet it just on purpose. They know it's not tr true, but they're just trying to stir the pot a little bit. So anyway, there have been a, a number of attempts. And you know, the, the Liberals have tried to pass some legislation. They got one bill through already, Bill C-11. Uh, at their convention this past weekend in Ottawa, uh, at, it's typical of conventions, of course, near the end of it, they opened the floor and delegates can bring motions forward to, to be adopted as, as party policy. And one of them uh, was brought up by a BC Liberal, but we'll get to in a second, and it's uh, called the Combating Disinformation in Canada Policy Resolution. And uh, I'll give you the, you know, here's the, the, the surprise ending. It passed unanimously. There was no debate on it. But this is such a, a potentially draconian motion. Uh, when the Prime Minister got back from England after being at the coronation, he immediately said, no way, this is just not going to happen. Uh, I, I don't know where these guys' heads were, and I don't know exactly why they thought this was going to be uh, an interesting and, and, a, and a, 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 a useful uh, policy program to move forward on. I want to bring our next guest into this because he's been studying this deeply, of course, about misinformation and how to deal with it. Marcus Kolga is the director of Disinfo Watch and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Marcus, great to have you back on the program. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. You've seen the, the the motion that was passed by the Liberals. Uh, I've seen it. Uh, I, I think this can probably go down in textbooks right now is the way not to do things, the way not to address some of the disinformation. This this is just strange. Uh, look, I think that um, the intents uh, of these, whoever it was that uh, introduced this uh, motion, this policy proposal was good. Uh, you know, I, and I think that everyone, um, across, most people across Canada are concerned uh, about uh, the toxicity in our information environment. And I think this policy was, uh, you know, it's it's not particularly sophisticated. Um, it's a bit ham-fisted. Uh, it's being clearly um, developed by someone who doesn't understand uh, the information environment, disinformation. And I think that it was, like I said, I think the intent was good. Um, somebody just wanted to, to introduce this motion to try and get the government to start um, taking a, a closer look and and uh, and uh, putting more effort into cleaning up our information environment. Again, um, you know, it's not particularly sophisticated. It, if 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 the government were to adopt this, it would uh, severely uh, limit um, free expression. Certainly, our our media, um, and I think it's just untenable. I mean, there's a there was one part of this policy suggested that the government uh, should be policing the veracity of information online. I mean, that's, it's not going to happen. It's not possible. And again, it, it would actually end up limiting uh, free expression. So um, I'm glad to hear that the, the prime minister, you know, reject, pretty much rejected it immediately when he, uh, when he arrived back in Canada and there's no chance. I don't think of the government ever actually adopting this as part of uh, uh, government policy. 
No, I mean, the resolution was put forth by a BC liberal named Catherine Evans, who's, uh, this may be her only claim to fame. I don't know who she is. I, no, I'm not sure she's an elected official, but she was a delegate at the, at the convention nonetheless. But as you say, some of the things that they put in there uh, essentially said that the government of the day, and I'm not suggesting this government, they, she just said the government of the day, uh, would be able to determine who is a, a, a legitimate journalist and who isn't. Um, yeah. and, and, and whether or not a news story is worthwhile or if it's disinformation, that the, the government would have the power to do that. And, and the biggest concern, I guess, I had with that, yeah. Marcus, is abuse of that, okay? Uh, because that's what Vladimir Putin does. You know, they, they decide who's a good journalist and not a bad one. And, you know, we saw this happen in the United States during the last pre- you know, presidential term when Donald Trump was the president. You know, they would look at somebody, and I'll use the Canadian example. I mean, you know, people like Rob Fife that writes for the Globe and Mail, some of these other yeah. investigative reporters, they're writing some stuff right now that, that is, is hurtful and embarrassing to the government, but it's, it's fact-based, it's researched. But a, a government that wanted to get their back up like this could actually use this legislation and basically shut these people down. It's, 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 I, I, I have the same impression you as I read this. Did they not think this thing through, about <laughs> what the ramifications no. could be? No, I, I don't think they did. And again, I think the intent was probably good. Um, yeah, I don't think I did they too, intended yeah. to, to censor <laughs> uh, free expression or, or the media. And, and you, you know, you bring up a good point. Uh, you know, Robert Fife and, uh, and, uh, and Stephen Chase and, and Stephen Sam Chase, Cooper, yeah. who have been producing some incredibly important ro- uh, uh, reporting, uh, probably some of the most consequential stuff of, of the past uh, year or a few years about uh, Chinese interference. And Look, I, I think that we need to make the distinction here, um, you know, between these fly-by-night sort of platforms that exploit uh, fear and hate um, and and partisanship. Um, there are a lot of those. And yeah, I mean, they do traffic and disinformation. A lot of them are just hucksters who, who are looking to make a, a quick penny off of online advertising and such. Um, do we police them? I, I'm not so sure, because if we pl- start policing them, then where do we stop? And let's let's be very clear that um, you know these professional journalists again Bob Fife, Steve Chase, Sam Cooper, these are experts. They are professionals. They are amongst the leading investigative journalists in this country. They are trained in handling truth, facts, sources, and the the newspapers that they work for, the media outlets they work for, would not be putting out this information if those facts haven't been verified, even if they're anonymous sources. And it's thanks to their reporting, as, like I said earlier, that we, um, we are now, uh, uh, the, the uh, foreign interference, Chinese foreign interference, other countries as well, that this is in the, uh, that we're having a national debate about this, that there's a discussion happening, that the government is engaging in these consultations about um, uh, creating a foreign influence registry. So we're, thanks to them, we're taking this uh, issue uh, seriously. And so, you know, any measures to try and uh, curb the work that they're doing are indeed draconian and I think could be seen as a as a form of censorship. And I think that um, that needs to be rejected uh, uh, out of hand and immediately. Um, but definitely the, the government does need to start paying closer attention to trying to clean up our information environment and making sure that um, those journalists, that good information, um, professional journalism does reach Canadians uh, and uh, and trumps those, uh, like I said, those fly-by-nighters, those platforms that are trafficking in disinformation. 
Well, and I just thinking as I was reading this over the weekend, I said, boy, if Richard Nixon had this kind of legislation, Woodward and Bernstein would have been locked up a long time before they ever got to doing their investigative reporting on Watergate back in the 70s. Uh, But that's the point. And and you bring up an interesting point here. And I can tell you, I've been in the business a little while myself here. You don't just go to your bosses, your editors, uh, your news directors and say, I got an anonymous tip. Let's put this on the front page tomorrow. Let's make this a lead newscast. Uh, There are questions asked. and, And although it may not make it into the printed story for the public, uh, there is a vetting. Okay, if not, who's your source? And oftentimes they don't name the source uh, to protect the source. I mean, there could be ramifications. They could get fired. There could be, you know, a number of different things. But they try to verify the information from the source. And and the, as the people you mentioned as, and many others in this business would do, that's what's done. In other words, they, they do not just willy-nilly throw something out there. They do some research and they try to verify to the best they can of, in these things. Uh, so there is a process here that I'm sure that you know some of the people that have voted for this motion were probably not aware of, but uh, maybe this is a, a, an education moment for them all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's for these newspapers, newspapers like the Globe and Mail, um, Global News and Chorus Entertainment, all of these uh, news gathering organizations, um, their livelihoods, the people that work there, the journalists, the editors, everyone there, it's all based on their credibility. Um, and for them to be uh, producing credible news stories. So, yeah, I mean, when you have a a source come to you who wants to remain anonymous, it's not the one person's decision to grant that anonymity. There is a long process, as you mentioned. Um, There are entire editorial teams who will vet that source, the information that they're providing. And this also goes through, especially when it comes to Chinese um, foreign interference and the reporting that we've seen from uh, Cooper, Fife, and, and Chase. Uh, there are big, lots of lawyers that are taking a look at this information as well. So there is a considerable vetting process. This information doesn't just come to light overnight. I know that with a lot of this reporting, it was it was being processed for weeks and weeks before it even saw the light of day. Um, and so, you know, if we just want to shut off that sort of very, very important uh, reporting. Um, you know, I, I think we do so to the detriment of our entire democracy, um, because this is this is really. I mean, it's it's so fundamental to the to the functioning, the proper functioning of our democracy. That sort of accountability um, and uh, and ensuring that those threats are exposed is 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 critical. So, yeah. Look uh, again. I think that this uh, this liberal policy proposal, the intent was probably good. It was extremely naive. Um, and I and I don't think that it's ever going to see no. uh, the light of day, and I don't think anyone's actually taking it seriously. But I think one of the takeaways out of this whole thing, though, and is, is I think this underscores the fact that this is a very real problem. It's a very complex problem, and it would be naive to think that one single piece of legislation is going to solve it. Uh, that this is going to take a lot more discussion yeah. uh, with a number of different people, uh, a number of different agencies, to try to find some sort of a solution to it. Yeah, Bill, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, this we're not going to regulate our way out of this problem. Um, you know, and I think that we've spent a lot of time, at least the government, um, uh, people in Ottawa have been, and have been thinking a lot about how we regulate our way out of it, how we uh, hold these uh, social media companies uh, to account. I mean, they're one part of the problem, uh, for sure, but um, they are not necessarily the source of the problem. Um, and so, you know, I, I think where, you know, the government has taken steps to try and address this starting, in, you know, back in 2019 with that election, although at that point, I think that the government was um, limiting their understanding of this problem to just something that, you know, it's election cycles where this problem pops mm-hmm. up. Um, I think that now that um, that 
their understanding has evolved to a certain degree, but it needs to uh, further evolve so that that solution, the only way that we are going to really, I think, meaningfully tackle this problem is through a whole of society approach where whereby we sit down with professional journalists, with media platforms, with those social media platforms as well, civil society actors and um, members of all of our political parties where we sit around a table and sort of make sure that we're all on the same page, that we acknowledge those threats and then try to figure out a way to work together uh, to solve this problem and clean up our information environment and thereby our democracy. And I don't think that we've had a, a serious, we've taken a serious stab at doing that yet. Um, again, I think the default has been to this point to, to regulate um, social media and other, even, uh, you know, mainstream media, media outlets. Uh, to do to 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 uh, solve this problem, and, and that's clearly not working. Um, exactly. So, like I said, I think we need to to take a whole society, whole democracy approach to this thing, and, and we haven't we we haven't done that yet. Marcus, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate the conversation. Anytime. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care, Marcus Kolga from uh, InfoWatch. He is the director of uh, DisInfoWatch.org, rather, and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Your Health Act that uh, the Ford government is passing right now with a number of different reforms and the incorporation of private clinics. And uh, one of the elements that this thing that we've always been concerned about and a number of people in the system have warned us about uh, was billing. Uh, the cost of these services, about upselling and things of this nature. Well, on the heels of that, some uh, reporting by Global News indicates that there are some inconsistencies, shall we say, uh, when it comes to billing. And this is based on past history. Not This is not speculation of what might happen. Uh, the uh, research from Global indicates that about $42,000 in wrongful fees have been charged to Ontario patients by clinics in 2018. Uh, Natalie Mira, who's been a guest on the program many times, of course, from the Ontario Health Coalition, uh, is not surprised by this. She says it's impossible to stop private clinics from gouging patients. Every time I speak with a patient who's been extra billed, they're quite surprised that that it's, you know, not allowed. And so, I mean, they're upset about it, but they don't actually know the ins and outs of the law. And it's going to be almost impossible to stop them. Well, that's a rather daunting idea, isn't it? Uh, let's bring our next guest in to do some uh, uh, some thoughts about exactly what's going to be happening here and, and what they've uncovered in this. Uh, Isaac Callan is a journalist with Global News who's done an awful lot of research about the overbilling and, and wrongful billing, I guess, in some cases. Isaac, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Talk to us a little bit about this. And, and and I know that, you know, when the bill was first introduced some months ago, as you recall, a lot of the debate was about upselling. And, and that's a concern, and I still think it's a concern for an awful lot of people. Uh, but what you guys have uncovered here is is really a different situation on this altogether. Uh, essentially, this is, I guess, people that got billed for services that probably should have been covered by OHIP. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's not quite the same as upselling. It's people who paid out of pocket for fees that should have been covered by their health card, fees that should have been free to them. And we've got the data stretching back over the last 10 years. It shows that, you know, the number or the amount that people are wrongly billed can really vary from year to year. There was one year way back, we're looking at 2012, 2013, where that amount was more than 300,000 in one year across all health settings. And then another year, a couple of years ago, where it was just over 3,000. So it really varies. What it shows us is that there are cases where people are being billed wrongly for things that they shouldn't pay for. Um, and those that takes place in clinics predominantly over the last five years. It's taken place in clinic settings. 
but there are also examples of it taking place in hospitals, of physicians wrongly charging patients, of optometrists, of dentists. There's examples kind of all over the healthcare sector over the last 10 years. And I think what, what it tells us about the system really depends who you ask. Uh, I know you just had a little clip from Natalie Mara on there, and she says, you know, it's, it says exactly what the Ontario Health Coalition has feared, that adding more private clinics to Ontario's healthcare sector could result in more wrongful charges to patients, that it's a system that maybe the government can't control. Whereas I think if you ask the government what it says, they would say that over the last five years, if 42,000 uh, in fees were wrongfully charged, and then in this case, those numbers were also obviously refunded and caught through the system, they would say, look, there are safeguards in place. And as we move to add more of these clinics, we're making sure there are more safeguards to ensure that this uh, doesn't happen. And in the context of maybe the thousands and thousands of surgeries that take place across Ontario, they would say it's a relatively small number. I think this is a case really of depend- it depends who you ask what they take from these figures. Yeah, and isn't that always the case? The You know, the people would say it's only a small number. It's not a big deal. Uh, unless it happens to you, then, then it's a big deal. Uh, but as you did the research on this, Isaac, I, I'm not, and nobody's suggesting this is willful malice that they're saying, hey, I'm going to rip, uh, you know, I'm going to rip Isaac off. I'm going to charge him for this, even though I'll hope it covered. Is, is it lack of knowledge, lack of understanding of, of the system uh, as it stands right now? That's definitely the fear advocates have, I think, and particularly a fear in terms of this is a complaints-based system. So if you are charged for something that should have been covered by OHIP and you've been refunded in these numbers, if you're part of that 42,000 that I'm talking about who were wrongfully charged at clinics and were found to have been wrongfully charged under the law, then that means that you complained and you proactively said, I was charged and that should have been free, and you start a complaint process. Now, over the last 10 years, we've seen an average of about 101 complaints filed per year for wrongful charges across the healthcare se- sector in Ontario. Of those, I forget the exact precise number, but it's around 40% were found to be uh, wrongful charges. So, you know, kind of four, four out of 10, as it were. And that number, again, advocates would say is pretty low. They would say that it's not that yeah, necessarily someone was intending to do it, but you have to proactively know that you were wrongfully charged and then you have to know where to go, who to speak to, and how to get that sorted out. So you really, as the patient, have to have all the information you need and the ability to go and make sure that you're getting justice. And advocates say that that complaint system, that reactive system, doesn't fill them with confidence as we expand the, de- the private delivery of public health care, because you really have to know your rights to make sure that you're not being overcharged. Yeah, but most people don't, as, as you've found out. And, and and I can understand that. I mean, you know, they don't know scripture and verse about, you know, what's billed and not, what can't be billed. And if your physician or, the you know, the, the whoever's delivering the care uh, says that's going to cost you 100 bucks, you, you, you can't argue. You don't know the, the legislation. You don't know the parameters. You usually just take it. And I, so I can understand that. And then, uh, as you've mentioned, you have to complain. In other words, the onus is on the patient to say, I want, I want something done about this. Most people aren't going to do that. They just don't have the time. They don't want to be embarrassed through the system. The system could be too daunting for them. I mean, it's, it's really stacked against the patient, isn't it? I think it's a really interesting question for the government to tackle as they speak, uh, set out this legislation. If you're going to expand the number of for-profit actors in the public health care system, what are you going to do to make sure that, as you say, Bill, people do know their rights, that people do know where to go? Um, I believe there was a point where there was a 1-800 number you could use to complain. That hasn't been 
widely advertised. I'm not sure if that is that is still the case. It's definitely difficult to come across this data. Um, the government says that it's expanding various protections. The patient ombudsman will now be able to be involved in these sort of situations, which is, you know, a, a government body sort of on the side of the patients, getting justice for patients. But yes, as you expand these clinics, I think there's a there's a quite a strong argument from advocates that says if you're going to expand this, and we know that there have been wrongful billings in the past, then you really have to expand the information, the public awareness campaigns, make it easier for people to complain, make it easier for people to know their rights so that they do have the power to navigate that system and make sure that what happens to them is correct, that they only pay for what they should pay for, and that everything that should be covered by your OHIP card is covered by your OHIP card and you don't pay out of pocket. I guess one of the overriding concerns here, too, is is we're getting into what services are, are covered and what aren't, the, the listing of services and delisting of services, uh, which, by the way, is a moving target because the government will, from time to time, change that, or I guess it's the OMA that does that, about what services can be covered. And, and uh, you know, the onus, again, on the on the consumer, i.e. patient, uh, to, to have that information for them is, is I, I, a little daunting, I think. It's not the sort of thing that you want to look up every day and say, you know, I'm going to the doctor and let me see what's covered and what's not covered. I think we all assume, probably naively, uh, that if we're going to go to the doctor, everything's going to be covered. And that's not really the case in, in some cases, is it? It's not. And I think what's interesting about this data as well is that, like I said, while the majority, so over the past five years, since 2018, we found that roughly $70,000 had been wrongfully charged to patients. Of that 70000 roughly 42000 was in these clinic settings. But some of that other money was charged in hospitals and by dentists and optometrists. So it's not just a case of these clinics which we're seeing expanded, but these wrongful charges, as you say, Bill, have been recorded across the healthcare system. And I think that's also pause for thought, the idea that in theory... We know that people have gone into a hospital, for example, and something that should have been covered by OHIP has actually been something they've paid for out of pocket, and an investigation has concluded that 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 was the wrong call, so that patients do need to be really, really on their toes in these situations, I suppose. Where's this going? Because uh, you've talked to, obviously, government officials, you've talked to people in the medical profession, and, and some of the, the, the patients who, who felt as if they were wronged by this system right now. I, I'm getting the sense uh, from the information you've been able to gather here, Isaac, that what we might be heading for here is some sort of a, um, an ombudsman that can adjudicate and, and, and make those evaluations. I, 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 as you say, there's probably always going to be flaws in the system, and you want to minimize those as much as possible. But, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, if I can make an apples to oranges comparison, uh, all the grief that we have in the airline industry right now, and, and what we're trying to do is put the onus for some of the things that go wrong on the airlines themselves as opposed to the passengers. Uh, do you foresee something like that, a discussion like that in healthcare too, where the onus will be on the system uh, to, to justify this as opposed to the patient having to pursue it? It's hard, it's hard to say without a crystal ball. The government is certainly yeah. <laughs> making noises in that direction. They are talking about the increased guardrails they're going to put up around this system. A lot of this legislation is obviously going to come through the regulations, which haven't been posted yet. This bill passed its third reading on Monday, so we're still really waiting to see exactly what the details are going to be and how high those guardrails are going to be, I suppose, when the government rolls them out. I think what we know is that this system is heading to a place where in order to clear the surgical backlog, patients are more likely to be interacting with one of these for-profit clinics in the next few years than they would have been in the past. The Ford government's been pretty clear about that. We're going to be expanding that private delivery of public health care. They say you will never pay for something with your uh, credit card that should be covered by your OHIP card. 
And I think we'll see through these regulations just how high the guardrails are that ensure that that tagline, that government um, soundbite that's been rolled out is accurate when it comes to the legislation and when the rubber hits the road. I, I know that one of the counter arguments to this, well, you, you, we played the Natalie Mirror piece just before you joined us here, and, and I know she was quite vocal about this, as she has been uh, for quite some time, and she says the best way to stop it, of course, is, is stop turning the services over to the public hospitals, uh, and f- from the public hospitals to the private, uh, and, and I know there are many people that, that, that are in agreement with that, but did you get the sense in talking to the government especially uh, that that horse is out of the barn, that we're not going to go back there? I think it is. I think this bill has been a long time coming. The health minister has been talking about essentially the details of this bill since July or August last year. They started to talk about the increased role that private delivery would take in the healthcare system in order to clear this surgical backlog. So the the road signs that this legislation were coming were there for a long time. It was announced, I believe, in January. It's finally passed its third reading. I think the government is very much on this track, and I don't think that that train is going to be returning to the station. I think that's the road we're going on. The government's announced it as a three-step plan in terms of different elements, starting with cataract surgeries, moving to knee and hip replacements that will be taken out of those hospital settings in some cases to clear the backlog. So on that front, yes, I think the government's pretty clear this is the direction they're going and it's the direction they've been planning to go in for quite some time. Well, and as you said, that's going to be a phased-in process, too. It's not as if, okay, this is all going to start, you know, July 1st. Uh, this, this is going to take some time to implement these sorts of things, and it's going to be done incrementally. Uh, but if people are looking for a, 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 a bright light of hope here, uh, it's, I think you covered this off in your reporting as well, is that uh, they haven't established the guardrails yet. In other words, they've, they've passed this, or, you know, you know the draft of the legislation, you know what they're wanting to do here and the intent of the bill, uh, but as to how they're going to regulate it and, and how they're going to oversee it, uh, yet to be determined, isn't it? Yes, the the final details, the the fine print, the elements that really matter in a situation like this, because uh, like I said, we're talking about a complaints process, we're talking about a patient um, safety process, uh, you know, looking out for patients from a consumer point of view. The devil really is in the detail in those situations. And while we have the broad outlines, I think that exactly how those regulations come to come into play is going to be incredibly important because how that works and the very fine details really matter when it comes down to filing a complaint about whether or not you've been wrongly charged. It, it is the devil is in the detail. Exactly. Uh, it's great reporting on this. Thank you so much for the great work that you did. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Isaac Callan, a journalist with uh, Global News. Some great work on that. And, and you know, just want to go into this with our eyes wide open. That's all. Nobody's suggesting this is, well, I guess some people are suggesting this is the wrong way to go, uh, private and public. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that, that that argument is going to be valid anymore because this government seems intent on what they're doing. And, you know, as we talked with a couple of minutes ago with Dr. Park from the Ontario Medical Association, uh, th- we've already got a, a combination of private and public systems. And what we need to do is refine it and make it better. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.